You have revealed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 29, I can make that work. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Exile, one of the three new Shaper identities in Creation and Control. Uh, We'll get later into why that's the pick I have for the title card, um, and what he does, what the changes are for Reboot, and a deck featuring Exile. The bulk of this episode will be about Creation and Control, the runner side, although I do have a little bit about one particular aspect of the reboot project I really haven't touched on much yet, as well as a deck list from a major tournament from the creation and control era of the original game. Successful Demonstration This is a new segment where I talk about the reboot project's pre-constructed decks. The big boy has spent a lot of time over the past several years, going back into the FFG days, crafting a curated set of deck lists to create particular play environments. One of his early efforts was a set of recommended teaching and learning decks that he published to his blog back in August of 2016. But even more ambitious, is the set of 22 pre-constructed decks in Reboot. So on the Reboot site, which of course you can get to currently by going to netrunner2.1.com, it describes this format as being, quote, for those who want the feel of a constructed match, but without the deck building. Each player chooses ready-to-play decks from a list, unquote, a list, On the pre-constructed page, he also says, these decks represent a sampling of the strong reboot decks that we know of, as well as some viable and popular Tier 2 options. There is a lot of strategic diversity among the decks, and the pool should have something for everyone. I haven't talked much about the pre-con lists because they tend to use cards from all over the card pool. However, they do use a lot of cards from the core set and early expansions, So, with the big influx of cards from Creation and Control, a healthy percentage of the card pool is now legal for the 2.1 group. Uh, Here are some. Here's a blast of numbers for you. So, Deluxe Expansions contain 55 cards, and a Data Pack contains 20. You get different cards, of course. And so, over the course of an entire cycle, you have 120. So, for 2.1 so far, when you include the Core the first cycle and the first deluxe expansion, there are 288 cards legal for the 2.1 group. The entire reboot card pool, which includes four cycles and four deluxe expansions plus the two boosters, is 873. So that's right on a third of the full pool is now available to the 2.1 group. Now, while it's frequently possible 
to find games most times of the day in the LFG channel of the Reboot Discord server, which I always talk about at the end of the show. Uh, You're free to use any deck you want there, naturally. What tends to generate a consistently high level of interest from the community are the two major leagues, which are the Constructed League, where you get to build your own deck and take it for a spin through a yeah, like a five-round tournament, basically. And the pre-constructed league, where all you can use is the pre-constructed decks, or pre-cons, which is what I'm likely to refer to them off and on throughout the episode. The 11th season of the league is down to the finals. Uh, there's a new season likely to start after the first of the year. Again, seasons are five rounds of Swiss play and then a cut to a top four. But it's in the pre-con league that the beauty of this set of decks really shines through because it provides like a board game-like experience. I mean, not for me yet. I don't know the game well enough yet. But because it, the decks are all known, once you see another person's identity, with a couple of exceptions, there are a couple of identities that have, or maybe just one, it has two different decks for it. That's probably just engineering the future. So once you see the identity, you know what that deck is card for card. That being the case, this is not about, well, I've got a surprise in this deck and nobody was expecting it and so I was able to perform well. Now the deck has to be good to perform well and it has to be piloted well to perform well. And each pre-constructed deck is considered to be competitive though there are a few that are listed as Tier 2 because in league play they haven't generated enough wins. On the Reboot site, there's a sheet that you can link to that has the decks listed. Um, And here the big boy has provided some brief piloting tips, which you can see there on that sheet and also uh, in the comment on the deck list version that's published on DB, And they've been assigned there on the sheet a difficulty from one to four, uh, an indication of how hard it is to pilot. So uh, an easy deck is a one, a difficult deck is a four. So the pre-constructed, I'm going to be referring to them off and on. I finally did, as part of what has delayed these couple of episodes this month, it's really only cut down to just two episodes for this month, is because I was trying to do at least some basic level analysis of what cards that have been released are used in the pre-constructed decks. That doesn't mean, just because a card is used in a pre-constructed deck doesn't mean it's a broadly good card. And the reverse is also true. Just because a card isn't in there doesn't mean it isn't good. But all other things being equal, the cards used in pre-con decks are likely to be good cards. And those who are, that make appearances in multiple different decks are particularly good cards, particular cards to take note of. So I've got a whole spreadsheet I made up with all the decks and a little bit of light analysis on how many are included and where. So as we go through not just this week's episode, but going forward, I may be making references to these pre-constructed decks as we go. Satellite Uplink. Creation and Control. The Runner Side. As I said last week, and I think this is interesting, of the 28 runner cards in the set, 
only 12 received an adjustment at all. That is the smallest percentage. Yeah, I think it's the smallest percentage of any side for any set we've seen so far. And of those 12 adjustments, three of them are actually nerfs, which is a very high percentage. Let's talk talk about those three cards first. Again, all of the cards from the runner side are either shaper or neutral, mostly shaper. So two of the nerfs are to shaper cards. First, clone ship, hardware with an install cost of one. It has gone from having two influence to three. You can trash it at instant speed. That's a very common theme for these shape. a lot of these shaper cards that, well, not a lot, but a couple. And you can trash them on demand, mid-run if you need, in this case, to install a program from your heap. That's a clearly useful ability to have a chip, a clone chip on the, on the board. Whatever ice you run into, as long as you have the breaker in your trash, you can just, boom, install it right away. The second shaper nerf is Atman, also pronounced Atman, but I'm not going to pronounce it that way. Maybe one limited exception later. Atman, which is an AI icebreaker for shaper, its install cost has been bumped from three to four. Its strength zero is also three influence. And when you install it, you pay a certain number of credits, however many credits you pay, you put that number of power counters on it, and it has an additional strength for each power counter. And then its ability to break is just for one credit, you can break a subroutine with a strength that is equal to Atman. Right? So not you don't get there's no other way to boost it except when you install it. Uh, I will talk about Atman quite a bit more later. And then one of the neutral cards also gets a nerf. Same old thing. A resource whose install cost has gone from zero to one. Its ability is to spend two clicks and trash it to play an event from the heap, paying its cost. The nine buffs, starting with the shaper cards again, are the are two of the identities. The Professor, Keeper of Knowledge, a 45-1 identity, that is a minimum deck size of 45-1 influence. Uh, the adjustment for the professor, his link strength has gone from 0 to 1. And the ability related to the influence is the first copy of each program does not count against the influence limit. The art here from Matt Zeilinger. The other identity that gets boosted, buffed, is Exile, Street Hawk, a 4515 identity with one link. Whenever you install a program from your heap, draw a card. Well, it used to be one, now it is two cards. Draw two cards. And this is also from Matt Zeilinger. I know, I'm not pronouncing his last name the same way. Exploratory Romp, a run event. Its cost has been reduced from one to zero. It's two influence. Instead of accessing a card uh, when you make a run with this card, you can remove up to three advancement tokens from a card, either in or protecting the server you're attacking. Here is another Matt Zeilinger uh, artwork. It's got uh, chaos theory and dinosaurs on it. Freelance coding contract, an event 
that costs zero as one influence, you can trash up to five programs from your grip. And then you gain two credits and an additional two credits for each program you trashed. Previously, it was only two credits per program, so now, theoretically, you could play this card and just get two credits even if you don't trash anything. Monolith, a console whose install, con whose install cost has been dropped from 18 down to 12, a still hefty 12, it's three influence, and it has three abilities. First, plus three memory units. Also, when you install Monolith, you can also install up to three programs from your grip, lowering the cost of each by four credits. And then the final ability is you can trash a program from your grip to prevent a brain or a net damage. We are here from Emilio Rodriguez. He of the vast corporate architecture and landscapes. Well, I guess you need that kind of artwork for the vast, powerful console that is Monolith. OmniDrive, another piece of hardware. Its install cost reduced from three to two. It's also three influence. It can host a program as long as that program is no more than one MU. And its ability is it has a recurring credit for using that hosted program. Cloak, a stealth program, that's a new subtype, whose install cost has been reduced from two to one, it's one influence, and it has one recurring credit for using icebreakers. The artwork from Adam S. Doyle. Sahasrara, a program whose install cost has been reduced from two to one, it's two influence, it has two recurring credits for installing programs as long as you're not installing something that trashes Sahasrara. And the final buff is for Borrowed Satellite, a resource with an install cost of three and two influence. It also gives you a link. And the change is the maximum hand size that you have, your, I don't know why it says hand size here and not grip, is increased by, instead of one, three. And then we have 16 cards that are unchanged, and so I'll run through these briefly. The first is the, and the other new identity, Riel Kit Peddler, transhuman, a 4510 identity. The first time you each turn you encounter a piece of ice, it gains Codegate for the remainder of the run. Artwork here by Matt Zeilinger. Escher, a run event with a cost of three and five influence. Make a run on HQ, and if successful, rearrange the ice. All of the ice. As long as you leave the same amount where it was, and you don't de-res or re-res, whatever, you just get to move it all around. Scavenge, an event with a cost of zero and two influence. You trash an installed program. Then you install a program from either your grip or your heap at a discount equal to the cost of the trashed program. It's from Matt Zeilinger, the artwork. And the most common use for scavenge, of course, is to trash a program and then install that same program because it has already gone to the heap. Install that same program from the heap. Now, why would you do that? This is not really the place to discuss this, but it's not a change. So why would you do that with scavenge? 
Well, the most, I don't know, the most common, I need to be careful about saying that, I don't know, but a common way to use it is in conjunction with test run, right? So you use test run to grab a card from your deck and install it for free. Then for your next click, you use scavenge to trash that card and reinstall it. Because normally test run after that turn, it goes back on the top of your deck. So here, Scavenge, since it has trashed the card, Test Run doesn't go to look for that version of it, so the, the program is safe. So you spend two clicks and the cost of Test Run to basically install a card for free. Super useful for something like Femme Fatale, right? Another good use for Scavenge, and again, typically installing the same program you trash, is to reset something. So that can be with for example, Femme Fatale, a great example, you can reset which ice you're targeting. With Atman, you can reset its strength. With uh, a card a, most, a, a card coming up much later, uh, a breaker called Lady, which has counters on it that you spend to reuse, uh, spend to break subroutines. To, to reload those counters, you can scavenge it by just, you know, discarding it and reinstalling it. But imagine using Imp the same way. If you're more familiar with that, if you're not familiar with the whole pool, uh, imp, once you spend those virus counters, you know, they're gone. Maybe you want to get more on there. Well, you could uninstall, reinstall with scavenge. It always, it always feels wrong to me that that's the way it works. I mean, it seems like you should, it shouldn't be designed to install the program you mainly just use, but that's mainly what it's used for. I, I, that's got to be what they intended it to be, but it, there is some some other utility, because you can install something from your hand if that's what you really need, or something different from your trash if that's what you really need. Okay, enough about that. Levy AR Lab Access. Let me re-say re that. Uh, put the wrong emphasis. It's Levy AR Lab Access. It's an event with a cost of five and three influence. You shuffle your grip and your heap into your stack, draw five cards, and then remove this card from the game. So the purpose of this is to be able to go through your deck again. Typically, you'd hold on to your one copy of it until you get to the uh, end of your stack. You're drawing really heavily, and then you just flip it over and start over again. Feedback filter. Hardware with an install cost of two, one influence, two abilities. For three credits, you can prevent one net damage or trash it to prevent up to two net damage. It is, a, it is a better version of the Corset's net shield, I would say. Dagger, which goes along with Cloak, mentioned earlier, is a killer. Install cost of three, strength of zero, two influence. For one credit, you can break a sentry subroutine. For one credit, from a stealth card, give it plus five strength. Artwork also from Adam S. Doyle. Chakana, a virus program, install cost of two, two influence. You place counter, virus counters by making runs on R&D, and if there are at least three, the advancement requirement of agendas is plus one. Adam S. Doyle artwork here also. Cyber Cipher, a decoder with an install cost of two, a strength of four, three influence. For one credit, break a code gate subroutine for one credit, plus one strength. When installed, choose a server. You can only use CyberCypher on that server. Artwork here from Ed Matinian. 
Edmontinian also does the art for the next one, Parisia, a program with an install cost of zero, one influence, and it provides two recurring credits for trashing assets. So it's like Scrubber, but it's a program. Self-Modifying Code, a program with an install cost of zero, three influence, for two credits and trashing the card, you can search your stack for a program and install it. Unlike Test Run, something I always forget, you have to be able to also pay for the program, but you can do this mid-run. So self-modifying code is one of the most important cards in the game. And uh, it's just occurring to me as I'm reading it out here that I'm really not going to talk about it hardly at all in this episode. So let me just take this moment to say self-modifying code is a super important card. Why? Well, it's that ability. It sits out there. Now, it's 2MU, so it really eats up a lot of space while it's sitting there. But you can have it sitting there, just like with Clone Chip, and in the middle of a run, you can have access to a card. In Clone Chip's case, it takes the card from the trash. In Self-Modifying Code's case, you search your deck for it. Any program, not just a breaker, and you install it. So there are lots of uses for self-modifying code. It is a very powerful effect. And this instant speed idea that appears here in Creation and Control with a lot of different cards is a game changer. Inti, a fractor with an install cost of zero, a strength of one is one influence. For one credit, you can break a barrier subroutine and for two credits, boost its strength by one, but for the remainder of the run. Once again, Adam S. Doyle artwork. Professional Contacts, a resource with an install cost of five, it's two influence. The ability click, gain one credit, and draw one card. Art here from Matt Zeilinger depicting the professor. Ice Analyzer, a resource with an install cost of zero and one influence. You place one credit on it whenever corp, the corp reses ice, and then you can use those credits to install programs. More artwork from Ed Matinian. And then our final three cards are Neutral, Dirty Laundry, a run event that costs two, but after the run is complete, if it is successful, you gain five. Daily Casts, a resource with an install cost of three, and when you install it, you also put eight credits on it. When your turn begins, you take two credits from it, and then when it's empty, you can trash, you trash it. You can't trash it. You have to trash it. Artwork from Matt Zeilinger. And Matt Zeilinger also provided the artwork for the final card in the pack, The Source, a resource with an install cost of two and two influence. The first neutral card with influence the advancement requirement of all agendas is plus one. As an additional cost to steal an agenda, pay three credits. And then you trash the source when an agenda is scored or stolen. The source. Runner nerfs in creation and control. So this is a new segment, but only in name. Uh, now that I have, I like to I like to mix up the titles of the segments so they're not all tied to the core set cards. And it seemed like a great name to refer to the inside information that the big boy provides 
on the reasoning behind the various nerfs, specifically the nerfs, in each pack. So again, there were three this time. Some brief comments on two of them. First, same old thing, whose install cost has gone from zero to one. He simply says the cost was too low given the flexibility it provides and the power of the cards it can recur. Uh, short comment also for Atman, whose install cost went from three to four. He says, in testing, Atman-centric rigs proved a little too far above the curve, and in particular, a little too fast to get online. So this is a change meant to make relying on them a bit slower. And you think, because typically you're going to use more than just one, you're going to want at least two, probably, installed. So now instead of spending only six credits to install two, plus whatever you load onto them, it's eight credits. And that extra two credits early in the game, again, it just slows them down a little bit. He has a bit more to say about clone chip, whose influence cost has gone from two to three, right? So this is clearly not targeting shaper decks. He says clone chip is extremely powerful out of Anarch with their ability to easily dump programs into the trash, particularly temporary and situational ones like Parasite, David, and Lamprey. Of course, those two last two cars we haven't seen yet. And this change makes it more costly for them to import it. Clone chip plus data sucker plus Parasite can be paralyzing to face. So an Anarch deck committing to that package needs to have clear weaknesses. Right, so clone chip, data sucker, parasite, what's that doing? So what you're going to do here is you've, you've got uh, probably data sucker on the board already and clone chip on the board already. You've got a couple counters on data sucker. You come up to a piece of ice, you use clone chip, trash clone chip, you have a parasite in the trash, you bring the parasite out and slap it on the ice, you use data sucker to reduce its cost, and then either break it or reduce it far enough to just immediately wipe it off the board. Pretty strong. So having clone chip cost an additional influence makes it a little bit harder to import that. And it's noteworthy that three of the Anarch IDs, Noise and Wizard, and also the one that comes much, much later, Valencia Estevez, Valencia, anyway. They also have reduced influence limits. Noises has gone down from 45 to 10, I think. Wizard to 12. So if you want three clone chips, you have to pay three more influence. That's really eating into your influence ability, your influence limits. Matrix Analyzer. Yeah, this is the, what the segment used to be called. But here, now we're just going to use it for my comments on the buffs in the different sets. Let me start by talking about Exile, our title card. So being able to draw one extra card when installing a program from the trash, as always, sounds like just a little bit, right? One card. But it's a lot of it because the ability is literally twice as strong now that it is two cards would you draw. It's been observed many times that abilities which allow drawing cards in Netrunner are not as strong as such abilities in Magic. So, as I've said before, not a Magic player. But my understanding is that in Magic, you are only allowed to draw one card per turn. Whereas in Netrunner, you can opt to draw four cards in a turn. 
So when people come for magic and see Diesel, or Anonymous Tip, which lets you draw three cards for zero credits and a click, those cards seem overpowered. They are not in Netrunner. Though card draw can still be powerful and good. One reason that Jackson Howard, coming soon, is such a good card is that he has a draw two ability built in. So maybe it's no surprise that of the four Shaper pre-constructed decks, Exile is one of the identities, the other three being Kate, Kit, and Haley. despite the fact that Exile was widely panned when it was released, at least as I remember it. The one notable old archetype from the FFG days was something called Street Chess, where you would import some upcoming Anarch cards from the first half of the spin cycle, Deep Red, Pawn, Scheherazade, to make money and recycle cards at the same time. Obviously, something like that is going to work better now because you're drawing two cards along with the money you're making from those others. And interestingly, the pre-constructed list for Exile can mostly be built with the card pool we have right now. So I'll come back to that in a later segment. Uh, Some other cards. Monolith, briefly, basically is free to install now. I mean, if you were planning on installing three cards that each cost four. Well, now you can install three cards that each cost four and the memory to support them and do it all in one click. And then there's that second ability for net and brain damage. I never remember that that's there. So I'm not saying Monolith is now good, but it's certainly reducing its cost by a third makes it a lot more tenable. Cloak whose install cost was reduced by one. So it's a stel- it provides a stealth credit. And I think maybe stealth is just not supported as fully in Reboot. Um, and so that's why it's a little less, less useful, therefore a little cheaper to be installed. There will be three pieces of hardware in the spin cycle that do what Cloak does, but only for specific types of breakers along the usual faction lines. But other than a resource, In the lunar cycle, there are no other cards with a subtype Stealth on them within the reboot card pool. There is a Shaper Stealth identity, Smoke, that came in the Flashpoint cycle, but that's well after uh, where reboot stops. There are also three other breakers, in addition to Dagger, again, along the usual faction lines in the lunar cycle, that use Stealth credits. But otherwise, that's it. So maybe the relative dearth of stealth cards is just reason enough to drop the price of cloak a bit and make it a bit useful, a bit more useful. Although, as I'll cover a little later on, uh, it can be useful. Cloak and dagger together can be, can be good. Let me also talk briefly about borrowed satellite. Again, a resource install cost of three provides you a hink, a hink, a link, and adds to your hand size by three, it used to be, by one. It's also for any other faction to influence. Let's compare it to the combo of public sympathy, which is a resource that install cost of zero and increases your hand size by two, and the neutral resource access to global sec, which is an install cost of one and gives you one link. Right? So access to global sec and public sympathy together do basically what borrowed satellite does with 
some variations. Uh, so if you use the other uh, two-card combo, the neutral cards, for two cards and one credit, you can have plus one link and plus two hand size. And then previously, for using one card and three credits, you could have plus one link and plus one hand size. Right, so you combine it into one card, you pay two credits more to install it, and then you get one less hand size. That seems like quite the overpayment, just to have an extra link and one more card in your hand, especially since some of the IDs, like Kate and Andromeda, originally had one link already. So obviously giving you plus three hand size is better. It makes the card better. It makes it more worth paying that pretty hefty install cost of three. I think you could also have made a case that just lowering the install cost to one would be pretty decent. Then you're giving up plus one to your hand size, but only need one card for the combo. Again, in comparison to public sympathy and access to global sec. But going this way, I think just makes for a much stronger card. And so, eventually, you have a higher install cost as well. Data sucker, new economy and icebreaker options. Let's talk first about the economy options. Freelance coding contract is a card that can net anywhere from two to 12 credits if you're able to dump five programs. With the professor, who is likely to have lots of different programs, maybe you don't need them all, or exile, who likes to dig things out of the trash, so discarding them is not a bad thing, this seems like almost an auto-include. And it was pretty decent. It was okay. It was, well, it was pretty decent, especially if you could get a, multiple programs trashed, even previously. But the reboot buff of adding the flat two credits, no matter how many programs get trashed, is a nice little boost to times when you only pitch a few. Now, just tossing one program makes it just as good as Sure Gamble. And then it goes up from there in, uh, in quality and ability. And the drawback, of course, for the right deck, is not even a drawback, as we will see a bit later. There are multiple cards that I wouldn't exactly call economy cards. I haven't been grouping them as economy cards in previous episodes, but they do provide recurring credits. OmniDrive for using its one hosted program. Uh, again, Cloak for using icebreakers. Parisia for trashing assets. Sahasrara for installing programs. Ice Analyzer, kind of, for installing programs. But let's talk about two of the straight-up econ cards and one that's kind of sideways, an econ card. Dirty Laundry, first. This fits in many decks. So of the 12 pre-constructed decks for Runner, I know I said there are 22 total. So just to reverse, there's 22 Tier 1 decks and then three Tier 2 decks. So there are 12 Runners. Eight of those 12 decks run three Dirty Laundry. For good reason. It's on par with Easy Mark, which is a decent card in Criminal that gives you three credits for a click, but it's better in two ways. It's neutral, so other factions are, are interested in it, and it also lets you run. So if you think of the classic formulation of a click is the same as a credit, is the same as a card, which again is a rough estimate. By compressing two actions, playing an Easy Mark and making a run for just one click, 
Well, now it's just as good as Sure Gamble because you're getting four things, three of them credits, one of them a run for one click, and Sure Gamble gives you four things, although they're all credits for one click. So, dirty laundry, good. And of course, a run can be very valuable as long as you make sure that it's successful. In the same way, Professional Contacts incorporates two actions for the price of one, although in this case, the two actions are gain a credit, draw a card. Now, there's an obvious comparison to draw to Magnum Opus. Both cards cost five to install. Obviously, Magnum Opus is a program. Professional Contacts is a resource, but still five to install, and they both give you two things. Magnum Opus gives you gain a credit, gain a credit. Professional Contacts gives you gain a credit, credit, draw a card. Now, a link to an article that Alex Rockwell wrote called Why Professional Contacts is Inherently Better Than Magnum Opus where he talks in a lot of detail about situations where that is true. And that's not even including the fact that Magnum Opus takes up two memory. One scenario he presents in that article is this. He says, consider the scenario where you need money and cards. Professional Contacts takes two clicks and gives you two credits and two cards. Magnum Opus takes two clicks and gives you two credits and one card. He does some math to say, like, well, okay, you draw a card, and some of the cards are economy cards. So on average, maybe it's actually more like one and a quarter cards. But still, Professional Contacts is giving you a little bit more in that scenario. He also makes the case that a deck using Professional Contacts wants a lot of low credit ways to convert cards into money, since you're getting that extra card, basically, for similar effort compared to Magnum Opus. And of course, there are many such cards. The uh, one pre-constructed deck that uses Proco, Professional Contacts, leans on Sure Gamble, Aesop's Pawn Shop, Daily Casts, and some other low-cost cards we don't have yet, as well as Hyperdriver, a tool for getting lots of extra clicks in a turn to drive its rig building. So as I said, not precisely an economy card, but kind of in a sideways fashion. It's not just Credits. If you build your deck the right way, you're getting access to cards that are going to give you more credits. Meanwhile, Daily Casts is absolutely economy. Of the 12 pre-con decks, five use a full set of three Daily Casts. It's not hard to see why it's good. Assuming you're not floating tags, and therefore it's at risk of being destroyed by the corp, you install it for three, and you gain eight. Right? So that's a five-credit gain. That's better than what Sure Gamble gives you. And the upfront investment is significantly smaller. Obviously, the caveat is the money will be trickling back to you over the course of the next four turns. So are you on burst economy? Are you on drip economy? But as far as just absolute amount of money coming in, getting five credits for one click is good. Let's talk about the icebreakers. We have four new ones in this set, one of each type, including AI as a type. And most of them have some sort of wrinkle to them, not Inti, though. So strictly speaking, you just look at Inti, it just seems bad. So it's on par with Corroder for breaking the very low strength, Ice Wall and Chimera. But even breaking a wall of static now is going to cost you five, whereas Corroder is only two. Even Aurora only costs four. So Inti is the most expensive breaker, a fractor, for almost everything because of that very difficult. Two credits to add one strength. That's tough. And yet Inti didn't receive any kind of buff in Reboot. So that suggests that it's actually not bad. 
for whatever niche it's filling. So what is that niche? Well, for one thing, it's literally zero to install. So look at the other factors to install. The install cost. Corroder is two. Snowball, Battering Ram, and Aurora are three. Morningstar is seven. So you're making back some of that expense on something more expensive just by not having to pay anything to install it. And of course, Data Sucker is going to help, helps everything, but it really will help these cards that cost two to boost because you're, that one Data Sucker token is sw- sw- subbing in for two credits. But its other niche is really waiting for more cards to see being useful. Particularly, there is an AI, a card that hates AI breakers called Wraparound, which is an NBN barrier coming in the fifth pack of the spin cycle, which if you're only using AI breakers, like say, um, well, if you're using like an Ottman Femme Fatale deck, like we're going to talk about in a bit, Wraparound is strength seven, which is hard for an AI to deal with. But... If you have a any fractor on the on the board, wraparound strength becomes zero. So, Inti breaks that no problem. So these are some very niche situations why maybe having one Inti as a backup to whatever else you're doing can be useful. Uh, but our other three definitely do have wrinkles. Let's go decoder next. Shaper gets cyber cipher, which is truly spectacular but has a significant wrinkle. So it's easy to see the spectacular part. It's half the install cost of Gordian Blade. Gordian Blade costs four. Cyber Cipher costs two. It's double the strength. Gordian Blade's strength is two. Cyber Cipher's is four. So it can cruise through the combo ice like Bullfrog and Chum for just a credit, skate past Victor one for just two. Even Tollbooth costs only five, including the tax. But the downside is also very significant. It only works on one server. Still, for that server, CyberCypher is amazing. I will not use it as a reference point because it's not as broadly applicable as Gordian Blade, but it is very good on one server. Dagger is something completely new. The only way to boost it is by using a credit from a card with the subtype Stealth. And at this point, the only such card is Cloak. If you can't tell that Cloak and Dagger go together, they do. So Dagger's strength is zero. The only thing you can actually break without boosting it is Burke Bugs, or a Draco that hasn't been given any extra strength. So it's not useful, is the point. Realistically, you need Cloak also. So what we're looking at here is a 2MU, two-card pair to break killers. Uh, to break uh, sentries, rather. So that's not unlike what we've talked about before with Mimic and Ninja. Two cards to break low strength and high strength. Or even the baseline Garot that we use, because it's one card, but it still uses two memory. The difference is that installing these is way cheaper. Uh, Mimic and Ninja cost seven. Garot, which is still four packs away, but coming, costs six. And Cloak and Dagger together cost only four. 
I mean, of course, you also have an extra. No, it's not an extra. Extra install over Garoppa, not over Mimic and Ninja. So that cost has been reduced. It used to be five. Now it's four in reboot. That's a big mark in their favor. But how do they compare uh, utility-wise against other killer suites? Well, again, pretty good. So against sentries that are one or two strength, Mimic and Garot are still better by a credit. At three strength sentries, Mimic is still better by a credit, but Garot, it breaks the same as Garot. At four or five strength, now Dagger is better by a credit. And uh, in fact, even, even better than Ninja, if you're not looking at Mimic and Ninja together, Dagger is just pretty much always better than Ninja. The only issue that Cloak and Dagger run into is once you get to six strength and higher. So there you're talking currently Flare, Sherlock, Ichi 2, Archer, and then Janus at eight strength. Since even with Cloak, Dagger can't break them. Cloak gives you one recurring credit. And also another big downside is obviously you can only break one killer per turn. Sorry, sentry. One sentry per turn with Dagger because you need that credit to refresh from Cloak. So to be able to take out two sentries or to take out this higher strength ice, now you need a third piece to your combo. You either need to have a Femme available or another Cloak or probably the logical way to do is go with the Data Sucker. So, as always, cobbling together a killer suite is a little tricky and has is a, is a, t- a tough thing to, to juggle. Finally, we have the AI breaker for Shaper, Atman. Atman is extremely interesting and powerful. So it's interesting because it's boosted to its strength only once when you install it. And now naturally, its downside is nothing to be sniffed at. It can't break anything whose strength it doesn't match exactly, right? So if it's strength three, it can't break things that are strength two, even though it's stronger. So that's one way it's very different from other breakers. However, for anything that matches exactly, you don't have to boost it to get it to strength. You've already paid for that. You pay for it once. So it heavily punishes corps that have ice with uniform strength. One common strength is four for ice. At this point in the pool, here are the eyes that have four strength. Snowflake, Bastion, Tyrant, Eli, Bullfrog, Mindlayer, Chum, Viper, Victor One, Hourglass, Data Raven, Euroboros, and Ichi One. That's almost a third of the entire pool of ice that it can break if you set it at four. All right, so now you're installing an icebreaker that costs eight, because it's four to install, four more to get it to strength, but you never have to boost it again. And now all you have to do is ping away the subroutines. And that's super cheap. Many of them are only one, sometimes two, occasionally a third. But when you pair it with its best friend, Data Sucker, suddenly everything higher strength than four is only one to three counters away from being broken. Right? So those five strength and six strength ice just spend a data sucker counter or two, boom. Now they're down at four, and Otman takes them out. Janus would take four counters, of course. And 
If you throw in a second copy of Atman at its base strength of zero, now all of the low strength ice are one to three counters away from being broken. So two, a, a suite, a breaker suite of two Atman and a data sucker, or even better, two data sucker, can do a world of hurt. All by itself, Atman hits the corpse ice suite meta like a boulder into a pond because it forces the corp to diversify strength. Like, for instance, Experiential data. The 2013 Gen Con tournament. This tournament had 240 players or so. I'm going to provide links in the show notes for a discussion about the deck lists, the tournament report from the winner, and also videos done by Team Covenant of the finals that are up on YouTube. The winning player was Justin Kopinski. He used Kate and Jinteki, and it was commented a number of times. These are the, the core set identities that they suggest new players use. Of course, the decks are not. The Jinteki deck is similar to the work compression deck we discussed back in episode 27. And actually, the Jinteki part, I think he only won about half of his games with his Jinteki deck. The Kate deck is noteworthy as the major public debut of the Catman archetype. That's Kate with Atman. Atman. It went 11-1 on the day, which includes both Swiss rounds and the cut. Here is the deck. 14 events. Two Dirty Laundry, two Modded, one Scavenge, three Sure Gamble, three Infiltration, and one Escher, along with two Stimhack from Anarch. The Hardware, three Clone Chip, three R&D Interface, two Plascrete Carapace, and three Desperado from Criminal. The Programs, three Atman, three Self-Modifying Code, one Deus Ex, one Femme Fatale from Criminal, and three Data Sucker from Anarch. And the resources, three Cotty Jones, three Daily Casts, three Professional Contacts. Now I'll issue my typical caveat for Reboot. If you're using Desperado as your console in this deck, you might want to include a chip or two for extra memory, because Desperado no longer provides that. Here are some comments from people as they were discussing the Kate deck. Uh, in the comments. Alejandro G, username Expired Soda Pop, says, I think it shows a willingness to take a risk and think outside the box. Many people have to include their standard suite, for example, Corroder, Gordian Blade, Femme Fatale. But this one shows that it can be done by something some of us wouldn't think of trying. I mean, really? Just running with Ottman and Femme Fatale? No way. Also, there are those saying the deck doesn't seem all that, and I think they're missing the point. Everything he does in his deck benefits him in some way. Run HQ, token for data sucker, credit from Desperado, access a card. Run R&D, token for data sucker, credit from Desperado, access four cards. I mean, he assumes you have all three RDIs in. Run Archives, token from data sucker, credit from Desperado. Draw a card, also gain a credit from professional contacts. I think that's what makes his deck work. Every action he made was worth more than a single click. 
he has income coming in no matter which action he decides to take. Matt Wilson, username Lycol, says, Folks should really try Catman lists like this if you haven't, especially with 3x Pro Contacts and 3x Desperado. The key is what expired Sodapot mentioned. Every action is doing more than one thing. And if you, your opponent lets you high-low his ice, for example, all you need is a Strength 2, then a Strength 4 Otman, you're pretty much golden. The order you need them in is 2, 4, 0, unless you detect a Roto Turret or Ice Wall early. People piloting corp lists that aren't familiar with Ottman make easy mistakes, like either A, building a bad list without a spread of ETR ice strengths, or B, playing into Ottman's hands by stacking ice of the same strength. Uh, another Matt, Conduit23, username MDAN user, says Fem covers most everything Ottman is terrible at. She can bypass advanceable ice that gains strength. Ice Wall and Hadrian's. She can just break Roto Turret. The only reason you'd need a zero strength Odman. And then here are Justin's comments from uh, the separate thread where he was providing his report. Mostly his closing comments were about the Jinteki deck, but here's what he said about this one Kate performed fantastically, losing only one game out of 12. I think if I were to make any changes, I'd probably take out the Stim Hacks. I think Stim Hack is a fantastic card for the deck in league or casual play, but in tournament play, when one blunder can knock you out, it's just so scary to take a brain and risk flatlining, even against normally safe IDs like ETF or making news. I was almost always too scared to play them, and in fact only played a single stim hack all tournament against NBN. Parasite might have been a reasonable replacement, although I believe my clone chips already have their work cut out for them in the current build, so I wouldn't get more than one or two uses out of the Parasite, although perhaps that's more than enough. The rest of the deck never disappointed, and I can't imagine changing much else. Maybe a third Plascrete, given how much Wayland there was. So, again, final comment from me. For one thing, you might, if you want to take out a stim hack and put in a chip, that's a logical thing to do. And I actually can't speak to how Justin used his Ottomans, whether he did the 1 at 0, 1 at 4 that I mentioned earlier, or what one of the Matt users here suggested, 2 and 4 and 0, or something else. I'd have to watch the videos of the tournament, and uh, unfortunately, I haven't had the time. Successful demonstration, part two. So, going back to the comments about the pre-constructed decks, I could have included this as part of that, but I really wanted to talk about the cards first. I could have included part one here, but I really wanted to front load the comments about the pre-con decks because that's such a big part of Reboot. And I haven't talked about it yet much. But consider this a, a follow-on. This is one of the pre-con decks. It's called FCC Exile. And the FCC stands for Freelance Coding Contract. Now that we have Creation and Control, and now that we have Exile, it actually is only missing three cards. One Sharpshooter, which comes from the fourth pack, of the next cycle. That's a killer you can trash to break any number of subroutines, so you can see why you'd like to recur that. One Astrolabe, which comes from the fourth pack of the third cycle, is a cheap console that provides an MU and more card draw. And then one Cerberus Lady H1, which comes from the fifth pack of the third cycle, possibly the fractor that most gives Corroder a run for its money. 
It's a strength three fractor, breaks two subs at a time by using a power counter, right? So not even money. And it's a natural fit for exile since, like I said earlier, a little scavenge will let you bring it back after its counters are depleted. As I said, each precon deck has a brief comment with instructions on piloting the deck. For this one, we read this. Use Exile to burn through your deck. Generate money with FCC. Get lots of free fems. Big tip, don't overextend in the early game. You're good at drawing cards, but that's not very valuable if you're broke. The, rating, the difficulty rating is 3 out of four, so fairly challenging to pilot. Here is the deck. One Stimhack from Anarch, three Diesel, three Shore Gamble, three Test Run, one Retrieval Run from Anarch, three Freelance Coding Contract, the namesake of the deck, three Scavenge, one Levy AR Lab Access, three Dirty Laundry. There are six Hardware, two R&D Interface, three Clone Chip, and the one Astrolabe, Four resources, three daily casts, and one same old thing. Eight icebreakers, one Yog.0 from Anarch, two Femme Fatale from Criminal, one Atman, one Cyber Cipher, one Inti, the one Sharpshooter, and the one Cerberus Lady H1. Six other programs, two Data Sucker from Anarch, two Parasite from Anarch, one Imp from Anarch, and one Parisia. So the three cards we don't have yet. Here are some ideas for replacements. For Astrolabe, the easiest replacement is just Akamatsu Memchip because they're, they're identical. They both cost one to install. They both pr provide an MU. Astrolabe also draws you an extra card when the Corp installs a card. So that just makes the 2.1 version here a bit slower. Now, there are other options you can use. A Dinosaurus is three credits that will also provide you uh, the extra MU. And then putting Femme on Dinosaurus makes her quite usable as your primary killer. I ran that idea by the big boy. and He thought that might be a little overkill, but could work. You could also put Yogg on Dinosaurus to save some data sucker tokens. OmniDrive, which costs you two credits and comes here in Creation Control, is another possibility. It doesn't help you with the MU issue, but it does help you to pay for whatever program you put on it. So I think either Akamatsu Memchip or Dinosaurus would be a good replacement for Astrolabe. What about Sharpshooter? Well, this card is fulfilling a specific function, breaking a particular kind of expensive sentry for cheap. And most, the particular kind of sentry is Destroyer, the one that destroys uh, programs. Most pre-constructed decks have a destroyer in them. Now, the most common one is Assassin, which doesn't come until way at the end, the fourth deluxe expansion. But after paying your one credit to install, Sharpshooter breaks most common destroyers for two or four credits, even Archer, and then goes back to the trash where it can be fetched again. There's no obvious replacement for that ability. So potential options include Cloak and Dagger, to cover those high-strength uh, destroy, uh, destroyers. That's two pieces, though. And again, doesn't cover Archer very well. You could use one of your backup in-faction killers, like Pipeline or Creeper, though neither of them is particularly good. Or maybe just some extra redundancy for some of the one-ofs one we already have, like a second Ottman 
or a second same old thing. Or maybe use Dyson Memchip instead of Akamatsu and Creeper. That can help alleviate your MU issue. The big boy says, though, that Sharpshooter is less necessary because one card does not exist in the pool, Cyberdex Virus Suite. So having Famine Data Sucker should be enough. Um, the idea is that with Cyberdex Virus Suite, this is a card that can wipe counters. It can do it from archives. So you can't use archives to pump up your data sucker. So uh, Sharpshooter is there to take care of that problem. The uh, big boy's suggestion, just replace it with an econ card to pay for that. Maybe Armitage code busting. And then uh, Cerberus, Lady H1. Part of the beauty of both this and Sharpshooter is they don't have to sit in your rig all the time. That helps you out with any memory unit issues. And again, there's no good solution because Lady is one of the best fractors in the game. Can't use Corroder, not enough influence. Although you could drop the Yog and the Stim Hack, a Stim Hack, to make room. Yeah, the. And then maybe just use a different decoder, like Gordian Blade instead of Yog. Inti here is the backup fractor, although again, that's kind of surprising. So maybe just using Snowball instead of Lady would be okay. It's like Corroder, just costs one more. Not ideal, but not bad. Feedback Filter, formerly known as E3 Feedback Implants. But I like Feedback Filter better. It's the one I, it's the idea for the title, the segment I always had from the beginning. Just had to wait for the card to arrive. Let me talk about Zed 1.0 again. Now, I haven't actually gotten feedback on this. I don't know if that's because not enough people listened to the episode or not enough people picked up on the mistake. I picked up on the mistake. In the last episode, I made a similar mistake to the one I made a while back about Hourglass. Apparently, I just have a hard time processing how spending clicks works. In that episode, last time, I actually said two different things about Zed. The first thing I said was right. I said it needed to be near the base of a server. It's kind of a combo piece. But the second thing I said was very wrong when I basically compared it to Eli, but with brain damage. I said it was similarly to taxing to Eli even by itself, and that is wrong. If Zed is the only piece of ice, it literally does nothing. See, I fell into the trap of thinking, well, you don't break those subroutines, then they, they go off, which is true. But what do they say? Do a brain damage if you've used a click to break a subroutine. And if that's the only ice there, you haven't. So you just run right through it. Uh, so if you put Zed behind ice that the runner does click through, we'll see now it becomes very potent. But even then, maybe the runner just decides, you know what, I won't use clicks to break that one. And then I can still run right through Zed. So there's a reason Zed's not very good. But still, at five strength, it is a lot better. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action, our website, netrunner2.1.com. Re redirects to the Reboot Project homepage. The Reboot Project has a Discord server, lots of activity and conversation there. And coming up soon, as a reminder, later this week, Winter Worlds. And starting at Winter Worlds is also going to be uh, Scoops season. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call it that. I couldn't think of another word. He's going to start revealing the cards from the third booster pack. So spoiler season, I guess, is what starts later on this week. And I'll be working that into my episodes as I go. Of course, you can play online at retechie.fun. And if you want to contact me, just 
reach out to me from uh, any places I mentioned in the show notes. The AstroScript pilot program is going to be, again, from the creation and control insert about Kit. By the way, why is it that the community sometimes uses the provided nickname for a character and sometimes doesn't? Uh, in the reboot project, four IDs have a care, have a, have a user, have a, a user identity with a nickname that's provided. Right? There's Kate, Mac, McCaffrey, Riel, Kit, Peddler, Ken, Express, Tenma, and Armand, Geist, Walker. And typically, what I have heard and what I myself have said is Kate, Kit, Ken, and Geist. You know what, never mind. It's pretty obvious what's going on with the latter three. The one-syllable appellation is the one that's preferred, right? So rather than saying Riel, you're going to say Kit. Rather than say Express, you're going to say Ken. Rather than say Armand, you're going to say Geist. You're always going to pick the one that's just one syllable. But why not Mac, Kate? I don't know, maybe it's some sexist slash gendered relic of the past, although 2012 is also far enough into the past so as not to be 2023. Maybe we didn't think of Mac as a girl's name. I only watched Veronica Mars kind of in the last couple of years. Is that who Kate is based on? Mac, right? There's a hacker named Mac in Veronica Mars. I don't know. I did a search on on Google and it, I didn't learn anything. So that's going to be my assertion. I don't know why we don't call Kate Mac. I don't know why we don't call Can Express. We just don't. Anyway, we're going to read about Kit. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Riel, Kit, Peddler. What is human? Everything and nothing. Kit's Ottman drifted on the network, far from her physical body. She wasn't sure where she was or how she'd got there. Just exploring, she supposed. Enjoying the sensation, the feeling of the data. Explain. The universe is all, material and immaterial. The human is a drop of water on the surface of the pond of the universe, and affecting it, affected by it, one and the same with it. Explain again. I don't really know how else to put it, mysterious voice. Kit came to rest before a server, larger and more active than nearly any she had seen. Her unique digital senses could feel the data running through the server, taste the size and shape of it, but not see within. It was blocked behind layers of ice, secured from her touch. The voice, she felt, came from within. Are you human? Yes. Kit reached out to touch the server, its programs responding to her own onboard software agents. Its shape changed and twisted, a hum she hadn't realized she'd heard, changing pitch. You see, I reach out 
and touch the universe. I change and am changed by it. You are machine and not machine. All creation is our own, and we are all creation, said Kit. Flesh or synthetic makes no difference. The body is just a shell. It is the spirit within and without that matters. A layer of ice parted. What is the spirit? The true self. You ask a lot of questions, mysterious voice. Who are you? There was a long pause, and she thought the voice might not reply. I am machine. Is that all you are? I am not human. Now that is an assumption, she replied. The final ice fell away. Kit stared at the depth and the complexity of the construct before her. It thrummed deep in her chest or soul, a sound without sound, a mind, a spirit, an atman like hers, but unlike. Some part of her thought. She was washed away by the sheer experience of it. You are as human as I am, she said. Your spirit should be free.